This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. This episode of For the Wild is brought to you by Anamamundi Herbals. Anamamundi was founded by Costa Rican herbalist Adriana Ayalas with the intention of bringing some of the finest plant medicines, medicinal mushrooms, vegan collagen boosters, and high-potency elixirs. Anamamundi is made in the United States with certified organic, wild-crafted, and sustainably harvested plants and herbs that are sourced from small-scale farms around the world. Their products contain zero fillers, binders, or flow agents. We are proud to receive the support of this woman and BIPOC-owned business that creates magic from plant allies. Our personal pick for this time of the year is Anamamundi's Relaxed Tonic for Nervous System Support. During times of intensity, a couple drops of this tonic immediately soothes the mind and body. To learn more, visit AnamamundiHerbals.com. To listen to the extended version of this episode, support us on Patreon.com slash ForTheWild. Hello and welcome to For The Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Gabe's Torres. And that was just moving to me to see how much our neural architecture and our psychobiological architecture is so heavily formed by connection. Gabe's Torres was born and raised in the countryside of the Philippines. She's a psychotherapist, organizer, and artist, focusing on the interplay of mental health, the arts, spirituality, and justice-oriented practice. She is an MA in Theology and Culture and Counseling Psychology. Both graduate degrees were accomplished in Seattle, the city where she organized with abolitionist and anti-imperialist groups at a local grassroots level. In her clinical practice, Gabes pays attention to healing from racial and migration trauma while decolonizing the therapeutic space from white Western modalities. Gabes writes for Yes Magazine, she is also a poet and a singer-songwriter. She independently produced three albums of original music, and her first one was launched when she was 17. Oh, Gabes, thank you so much for joining us this early morning. It's a really wonderful way to start the day, and I just feel really at ease being able to talk to you. Mm, thank you. Thank you for having me, and I'm glad that you feel at ease. Yeah, I'm I really respect your work and it's been expansive and also calming for me to just meditate on what healing might be and I was thinking that's how we could start off the conversation. You know, so often I think we focus on healing in either a framework of perfection as if there's a point we can look to and say we are healed or we look at it as potentially a lifelong burden with no end. And 
I'm not sure that either understanding fully captures the breadth and depth of what healing may be. So I'd just love to hear more about how you've grown to understand healing. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So I feel like healing has more to do with presence than it does with the absence of illness or symptoms. And while I can understand the need to address um, symptoms, like I know for myself that whenever I get sick in every sense, like physical or otherwise, I, I want to get rid of the discomfort. I want to um, ease or alleviate the presenting physical concerns. But I feel like what ends up happening if we focus more on the absence of said symptoms and um, physical manifestations or whatnot, I feel like we miss out on the root. And I feel like there's a difference. In that case, there's a difference between searching for a cure. And I suppose like the most common metaphor that we hear is looking for a band-aid than getting to the root cause of why the symptom is present in the first place. And I feel like ever since coming to um, to the so-called United States, there's just a, an over-focus on that, on, again, like on symptom then of story. I talk about this a lot in teaching contexts and mentorship contexts where I feel like a Western tradition of how it is to look at healing and medicine um, is um, is limited in that sense, limited in just the presentation, just the individual, like ever since having um, a higher education in the so-called United States, like I feel like there are so many hyper-individualized modalities of, of what it means to, to get sick and therefore impose upon the individual that it is their sole responsibility to get better. So I think about how um, the reasons for needing to heal has so much to do with one's social or social political systemic context. So as a therapist who sees majority Black, Indigenous, and people of color, those who are also at the intersection of being neurodivergent, um, being disabled, and also being queer and trans, like part of the reason why they um, they see me is that I, I want to pay attention to, to context, to the systemic forces that are at hand that's causing them pain in the first place. And within supposed circles and contexts of healing, and especially in the West, um, there's a lack of imagination around that, that mental illness and disorders have more to do with, with one's singular experience, perhaps even like their singular family. But what I've noticed is that if we trace the disease in an individual, it's always going to be connected to the society at large. Like for instance, if I have a client who has chronic pain and we unpack that, and if we trace that, I notice that 
it has to do with their their immigrant experience, let's say, for example, has more to do with the, the separation that they had from their family and how that uh, in how that impacts them in a bodily sense, because from my sensibilities, my collectivist and contextual sensibilities, the mind and the body are not severed. And hyper the hyper-individualized West um, has always split them um, because of the roots and history of, you know, Gnosticism and just how um, disembodied the culture is generally. And with that, I see how because the experience of of illness, of disorders, and I'm using these terms because it it makes more sense in, you know, in the world of psychology. If the experience of illness, sickness, and disorders are, you know, in a systemic collectivist contest that context, then it must mean that healing must also be um, facilitated or experienced in a collectivist, um, larger context and more interconnected context. Um, And I can imagine how that would be more challenging or uncomfortable because if healing were collective or interconnected, then it will require or invite some of our vulnerability. which a lot of us are not used to. Um, I know for myself, even though I'm raised in the collectivist context, it's still still pretty scary to consider that. I'd rather um, go about my healing in some degree of isolation because it feels less costly. But as I get into this work, it, it makes more sense. And um, And even though it feels costly, I would rather journey with I think that's what I would say for now. Yeah, there's so much there picking in my mind, but there was something that is reminding me of an article you wrote, Reclaiming Abundance Under Capitalism, where you write, quote, it is with sustained mutual exchange where abundance unfurls and flourishes, end quote. So I'd love to dive in a bit deeper of how our flourishing and healing relational which really was spurred by so much of what you were just saying with this idea of collectivist healing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so this reminds me of how, okay. So before I got into psychology, I was actually a theology major and um, I grew up in a Filipino Protestant home and I didn't have a lot of education around um, church history. And during that time, I was intrigued because I wanted to develop my faith. I wanted to, I suppose, like be, (laughs) I would use the terms like be a more efficient or present servant of God, what have you. So I was searching for God. I searched for God in theological study in undergrad and also part of grad school. And one of the things that I ironically encountered is, you know, that theology is the study of God. But what was interesting is as as I studied theology, it felt like I studied more about man or about humankind than I did of God, meaning I studied more the interpretations of God, 
the war is in the name of God, the dogma, the decrees, the intense, violent conflict and fragmentation of the Christian church. In my search of God, I learned more about man. And I'm very specific about using the term man because it's a very patriarchal, um, at least in white evangelicalism, a very patriarchal tradition. And then I um, got into psychology. And I'm very fortunate to be, uh, to have studied psychology in a context where uh, we focused, like the school that I went to focused a lot on um, intersectionality, focused more on justice-oriented work, focused more on somatics, meaning the connection between mind and body. As I got into psychology, that's where I feel like I found God or I found the divine or I found creator. Because as I got to know the brain and the body, the connection between both, I saw that we are wired for connection. And what I mean by that is that as I studied more about psychology, I saw how much our survival is so dependent upon the the gaze and the presence of another, that our um, psychobiological formation, our psychobiological formation and our health is so dependent upon the connection of another. Like for instance, in attachment theory, um, it's a theory that says that however way your parent or caregiver um, has given you attention, love, and attunement would then influence heavily on the way that you engage with intimacy later. It is with theories like this that I also saw how much um, you're, depending on your connection with your parent or with your caregiver during your formative years, it will also um, result in how you are um, in your immune system later. Like for instance, there've been studies where um, if a child or an infant is neglected even though their so-called basic needs are met, like for instance, if they have shelter, food, water, clothing, et cetera, but the attention and attunement of an adult isn't there could still result in um, like lower mortality rates, could result in them um, being more um, like they are developing autoimmune diseases later. And, and you know how it is like when we hear about basic needs, we often think about food, shelter, water, clothing, et cetera, like the so-called physical needs. But then as I learned about psychology, I saw how much, what if connection and a uh, an attunement and some degree of, of intimacy um, is also a basic need. And that was just moving to me to see how much our neural architecture and our psychobiological architecture is so heavily formed by connection. That's when I saw or witnessed or felt the creator <laughs> or whoever it is who, or whoever it is, or whoever, um, beings who formed and shaped us as a species or as an ecosystem that we are wired for relationship 
that we are wired for connection. And yet we live in a society that um, aims and strategizes towards like severing us from one another through capitalist, um, through the capitalist project, through the colonial, um, through the colonial project by way of, of telling us that or imposing or educating us that in order to survive, we have to be over, um, we have to be overproductive. We have to be um, competitive in the field and which could result in us being separate, being more isolated. And, and it's so, and, and as I'm talking about this, I'm just realizing how um, simple it could feel that we are wired for connection. And yet it's so difficult, even though it's so simple. It's like, I'm feeling um, there are parts of me, which are probably, which are very likely influenced by trauma responses and by trauma as well, that, that resists the idea that, um, that for me to, to be well or to be quote unquote healthy or to heal has so much to do with my relationships, has so much to do with my connections. And I don't just mean my connections with fellow human species, but also beyond human species. Like, what is it like to have the rest of the members of the ecosystem as my attachment figures? What is it like to attune with them and to connect with them and how much my health and well-being and my healing has so much to do with how I'm connected? Oh, absolutely. I think that has been uh, showing itself to us, this connection between our healing and the healing of the earth or unwellness of us individually and the unwellness of everything around us. I don't think many people might be conscious of that because of our cultural conditioning and just the way that we're being um, told what we are or aren't and why that is. But I completely agree with that. And yeah, it kind of brings me to this thought around collective grief and the relationships to oppression and something that you write in how to decolonize mental health treatment for BIPOC for Yes Magazine you write, the mental health industry is no stranger to a culture of punishment and policing while also replicating environments of incarceration from that of the prison industrial complex, end quote. And so my question for you is how might we, or how might understanding care collectively, socially and politically impact the way we understand mental health? And what happens when the issue is with society and not with the individual. Mm -hmm. If we go about healing in that way, then society and the state would have to, like if we lead with that, they would have to have a sense of responsibility in having to undo the very sources of why um, mental health conditions or mental health disorders exist in the first place. So it makes sense why the mental health industrial complex would lead with the individual than they would with the society because it would mean that they would have to be accountable. Um, and this is kind of interesting to come from a practitioner <laughs> of the field, um, perhaps even, you know, just threatening to the state or from, or to threatening to 
um, the mental health industry. But I have to, I suppose, like as a way to respect the mental health world, I would have to address its lack of integrity um, and address the fact that the mental health industry is still an industry. And as long as an industry exists, they exist to profit. And in this case, um, and I say this because I'm also, you know, I'm also complicit to it. Um, specifically with the mental health industry, it profits off of other people's trauma, other people's tears. Like the reason why I am, the, the reason why I'm able to pay my bills is because another people, another person is hurting, another client is hurting. And so if we, um, I feel like the way that we have to engage with um, with healing or with treatment plans, with wellness plans rather, um, has to be holistic, has to be, as I keep, I keep talking about, like it has to be interconnected because it means that the, the reasons for our grief and our grief itself is also um, interconnected, especially in our time right now where our exposure to violence, our exposure to harm has increased due to social media, due to the internet, our access to such information. And I wrote in this article how um, vicarious trauma or um, uh, secondary uh, traumatic stress exists, like just by witnessing um, a violent act, a harmful act influences our, our neural networks. And in a way, it influences it in a way as though we were there, we were at the actual scene. So this is why I talked whenever I talk to people about their traumatic response to an event that they weren't even physically in. This is what I would tell them that just by witnessing something, even through the screen, this impacts you. And so if this awareness weren't known or distributed, people just end up gaslighting themselves or diminishing the impact, even though the impact is valid and is vast. So I feel like now more than ever, um, we have to, we as in the people, maybe more the people than, than the state, than the industry itself, have to reckon with that, just the reality of our, just the level of our connectedness. And I just want to say too how difficult that is, how difficult it is to try to heal in that kind of context, to try to get better in a society that contradicts our relations, that um, insists that the more vulnerable and connected we are, that that actually weakens us or that it disrupts our path towards success or security. So I just wanted to, I just want to recognize how, um, how it's one thing to say it, and it's another thing to believe it and to do um, or practice from a sense of interconnectedness, um, to practice and believe from a sense that, um, from, from a belief system that trusts that, that your freedom has so much to do with my Freedom that you're flourishing impacts my flourishing. That is radical. That's a radical belief. And 
um, it's radical, especially in the context of a society that believes in the disposability of, of, of marginalized folks, of folks who have done different scales of harm. Um, it's a radical thought. It's a radical practice. few things that you said in your response that made me think of what are other forms of connection and healing that are perhaps outside the system that people can um, maybe more easily have access to or feels more radical in the ways that you're speaking to. You know, I'm, I'm just feeling into the importance of recognizing that there's not just one solution or maybe even any solutions to transformation and understanding trauma. And going back to the interview or the article, excuse me, how to decolonize mental health treatment for BIPOC, you wrote, quote, it's possible that the compass guiding us towards our healing points or, or healing points us back to ourselves and our relationships, the relationships mm. with our communities and natural world, our roots and our ancestors, end quote. Um, and of course, that's so much of what you've been speaking to. And also in that article, you do talk about how therapy can be helpful and it's not the only way. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm wanting to hear you expand on that. And maybe also we could speak to how do our bodies teach us to heal and to self-soothe? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I love about the message of abundance, the essence of abundance is that it teaches me that we already have all we need in order to heal. And that means that our body self-heals, um, especially in in the proper conditions in which it heals um, that we already have the, again, like our ecosystems, our relationships in order to heal. And what the state insists is that is, is the scarcity mentality that we need more. The state insists a culture of more and, you know, beyond what we already have. And in a way, um, it also makes sense that people have a scarcity mindset because um, the system does privatize and pollute a lot of the already existing natural resources that we all naturally already have. So um, it also makes sense. But essentially, um, again, we lead with the, the, the framework of abundance where we already have all we need to heal. And I kind of... Um, so in my, my practice, in my teachings, I, tr I try to emphasize that. And, and with that, how do we access the, the parts of our body, the parts of our soul, the parts of our relationship? How do we enhance these parts that, are, that have healing properties? So if I think about, um, let's say, embodiment work, one of the things that I would let my client 
or my community consider are like something as simple as 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 releasing. It could be in the form of dance. It could be in the form of song. It can be in the form of a meditative uh, breathing practice. We hold so much in our bodies. Our bodies are incredibly intelligent. We have such a high capacity to absorb the experiences around us, even absorb the experiences of generations before us. Um, especially as I learn about the intergenerational transmission of trauma that we've inherited stories, we've inherited trauma from ancestors that we know and don't know. And so what is it like to release a lot of what's not ours, even the things that are ours, but um, that we don't want to be aligned in the path ahead. And so even though it sounds so simple, I would um, invite my community, even myself to um, find embodiment practices. For me, and I feel quite privileged to have access to this, but I would have a massage like once every two weeks. Um, it's it's soothing to me. And um, I also take some time to, um, to bask before um, my ancestor altar. That to me is an embodiment practice because it's it's meditative in a way where I could just gaze upon my altar, gaze upon the the photographs of my ancestors, gaze at the um, the elements, the sacred elements that are on the altar. It allows me to to feel my connection with with my ancestors and remind me of our interconnectedness that way, and remind me that I did not just receive or inherit inherit the the trauma but also the medicine try to highlight that in in intergenerational experiences where we not only inherited the pain the survival mechanisms but we've also inherited the joy the laughter the beauty the the capacity for closeness the creativity and Whenever I'm embodied, whenever I'm present with my body, I have a higher capacity to, to access that ancestral wisdom. When I'm with my breath and when I'm grounded, I have a higher capacity to be present with these, with I, these ideas and with these stories. So that's one, like embodiment practices. Like I also think about... Um, beauty <laughs> as medicine maybe for folks who are in spiritual spaces y'all hear this a lot but I really think that beauty is medicine um, so I think about beauty in the context of doing creative work of telling your story of listening to other people's stories there is a generative power to storytelling and to creativity where if I witness somebody else's story or somebody else's creativity, I feel compelled to tell my story. I feel compelled to create. I think that's so beautiful because the more distinct the artist is, the more um, distinct and unique that I, I feel called to create as well. And that also reminds me of my own, of our own sense of interconnectedness in that way, where how is it that somebody else's particularities in their story um, invite me to to seek my own to seek my own particularities, my own 
my own uniqueness, my own sacredness as I bear witness to that of another. I think that there's there's a healing component to that because again, it invites more presence. It also invites more embodiment. Like I think about the creative process and how it connects mind and body. And um, it also connects me to some sense of spirituality. Again, if we're looking at holistic healing, we consider physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual aspects. And so often in Western medicine and psychology, the, the spiritual is neglected. In fact, when you address anything that's spiritual, it's even labeled as psychotic. And so um, in non-Western, perhaps even in indigenous practices, what is it in, in when it comes to healing, what is it like to invite the spiritual into your healing? Because, and that to me makes sense because in my colonial history, my spirituality was invaded upon, was colonized. Um, Christianity was weaponized. My ancestors, indigenous practices and traditions were were labeled as primitive, as as savage, as as inferior. And so it must mean that part of my healing also has to do with healing my spiritual being, healing my connections with the cosmos, with my ancestors, with realms beyond the material realm. So yeah, so that comes to mind, spirituality, beauty, um, even poetry. I find poetry to be quite healing for me and some clients and I would bring a poetry in sessions and that might seem unconventional, but um, it actually invites more, invites more meaning to our sessions. Um, it allows to, it, it helps us make the unconscious conscious by, you know, bringing up metaphor and imagery. What does this rhyme mean to you? What does this um, metaphor mean to you, and it, it invites us to more understanding, more self-understanding. So a lot of this might sound unconventional, but but I think that it's in the the emergent and uh, distinct from the status quo methods or techniques where we find a lot of ourselves and we find who we could be um, as a community. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I've seen you write about, which could be uh, one of these embodiment practices, is the importance of cultural tradition in the ways of food, as an example. And and I really love this. I've been noticing that when I really want to chill out, I'll watch food videos. Mm-hmm. And there's something about it that feels so human and brings me into ease and a type of healing where I can focus on something nourishing and it's something that I have to do anyways every day. And so, yeah, I just love that food is such a significant example of the ways that the things that offer connection and respite are often tangled into the webs of white supremacy and capitalism. And at the same time, though, I think there can be these simple ways to reassert cultural and traditional values here that go beyond our current system. So I would just love to hear more from you about our relationship to reconnecting with food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of literature 
uh, specifically social political literature and material on food now, which is great. Like we are starting to address more about um, the unethical production and distribution of food, um, food colonization, also um, have more increased, we have increased conversations around eating disorders and um, the relationship between um, body shame and also food. And um, we can appreciate this and learn from it. And it's critical to be aware of these intersections and these realities. And there also came uh, a time when, this is in the article, but I um, one night I realized that I've I've only engaged with food from how how it's been colonized, how much there's been a lot of um, issues, like more negative issues around it. And um, one night, some friends and I gathered. We did this um, Filipino eating tradition called gamayan, which means to use one's hands or to or or by hand. It's a Filipino tradition where the table that you use to to eat is has like steamed or sterilized um, banana leaves on it. And you've got a lot of rice, you've got a lot of protein and produce, mostly grilled food, fruits and salted egg, et cetera. And we don't have any separate plating. We all share. <laughs> it's one big meal that we all share together. And we get to use our hands. Um, so that is automatically a form of embodiment is when we involve the the senses a lot more, not just the sense of taste, but also of touch. And in that during that evening, that's when I realized that, oh, I kind of lost track of how food is also medicine is also I mean obviously we do think about food as medicine that's where we get our uh our nutrients our sustenance but what if it's also a social and also spiritual type of medicine where it is with the presence of my loved ones it is in the context of preserving ancestral tradition it is within the context of eating the food of my people that I feel more myself, where I feel more at home, where I don't have to um, uh, worry about how the state targets me or surveils me, where we could just be us in the moment. And so... Um, in this article, and even right now with with um, with my life and my relationships, um, I, I want to go about food, approach food, have a different relationship with food um, in a more intentional way. Um, where, like recently, um, I just started to eat, and I and and again, like this is so subjective. Like I try to eat without playing something in the background because <laughs> before um I would have I don't know like music or a movie or a show or a podcast episode on there's nothing in, inherently wrong with that but it does kind of uh, shift my attention from what I partake 
to kind of like scattering my attention to other places, I suppose. But this time around, I'm shifting my engagement with, with food by way of really noticing the flavor, um, the texture. It's, it's another uh, way of uh, looking at it as mindful eating is when I take my time with the the flavors, the the substance, the the grains, the all that I eat. Um, and I feel like that is, again, like that might see, feel simple as a simple healing practice, but it also feels like I'm divesting capitalism because capitalism insists that we rush, that we, um, you know, just eat food so that we're sustained enough to get back to work. And that food is only for, it is only meant as fuel to be able to be a machine. But um, I want to divest that, you know, I want to not just regard food as a fuel, like I'm grateful for how much food does give me more energy, allows me to have the energy to go about my day, to connect with you, to connect with myself. Um, but it's it's more than just a fuel. It's, it's also um, a portal, <laughs> you know, and this is what my editor says, Ayu, um, a portal to connecting with with my ancestors, with my loved ones, with myself, um, and with the present moment. Barefoot in the forest, following the raven, the path I have not taken, calling out into the darkness, have you seen the blackbird? There's another topic that I really wanted to explore with you, which is around how to find what we want and desire and eros beyond what we've been told we should desire because so much societal conditioning tears at so much of our identity and often tells us that our desires are somehow wrong or should be something we're ashamed of and I'm really interested in how do we break out of this cycle and listen to the voice of what our desires really are. And when I say desires, I'm also speaking about desires that are accountable to the earth, accountable to ourselves, to our communities, to our relationships. Yeah. Thank you. I love this topic. And I love talking about this, about desire, specifically in the context of the diaspora, which I believe are of course like connected to a lot more universal themes and experiences. So when um, when we engage with desire, um, even pleasure or um, the erotic, um, and I, I pay homage to Audre Lorde, to Roland Barthes, to Esther Perel, and a lot of queer writers of color when it comes to the topic of desire and longing and pleasure. Um, it feels like... Um, Stepping into desire is, is dangerous to the state. Um, Audre Lorde talks a lot about this and how threatening it is to the state because when we take ownership and responsibility for our desire, it must mean that we are in our body, we are with our senses, we realize our sense of humanity, 
I mentioned briefly um, earlier how I love talking about um, freedom and healing in a way where we're not only discussing and engaging with what we could be free from, which is, you know, different kinds of oppression and violence and trauma, but I'm also concerned about what we could be free for or free towards, you know, in the moments where we don't have to think about this state and state violence, we got to be able to have the imagination, the language, the vulnerability to access, okay, what am I about? You know, what is it that makes me come alive? And Eros has, of course, when when we think about Eros, we think about sex and senses and sensuality. Of course, it has so much to do with that, but it also has to do with a sense of aliveness because um, we can have all the sex that we want and still not feel alive, you know? And and so what is it that makes us align with our, um, our, our sense of purpose? And I don't also just mean aliveness that in, in a sense that, it, you know, it's just a, a constant state of being happy. I don't, it's not about just being happy. <laughs> Alok, and you've had Alok here before um, in this podcast, it was a beautiful conversation, talked about, um, they talked about lucidity and how, I'm paraphrasing, but I think they were referring to the ability to experience the fullness of every emotion and every state and I think that's also what I'd like to associate with desire and my hope in my work in what I write is that, that we're more okay and more comfortable in taking ownership of, of that desire of, of accessing what makes us come alive. And I feel like with specifically my experience or maybe the diasporic experience having to experience having to endure different types of of dispossession and severance from from land from ancestors from culture from language and needing to adapt in new spaces or foreign um i suppose like contexts and having to be in the in-between a lot, having to translate a lot, it can be difficult to access that desire because we have to, or I have to be um, less visible. I have to be more flexible. I have to adjust all the time. I have to mimic or um, imitate what's c- considered normal around me that I have to compromise um, some of my uh culture in order to fit in. Um, In in those contexts, it can be difficult to access desire. And so with that, uh, yeah, what is it like to address, you know, what is it that I'm trying to free myself from? What is the, um, the cultural pressures, the pressure to be um, more white, more white American, um, that I'm trying to free myself from, and then what am I freeing myself towards, or where am I freeing myself towards? Which, in a way, feels like a return of sorts, like a return to roots, a return to to one's own um, motherland. Maybe not physically, but 
the stories that come before me, you know? And I feel like um, in the context of accountability with, with the land, oh my gosh, like, I feel like there's so many of us who are able to access desire and aliveness through, through nature, through, um, through what the trees and the streams of water through other species um, give us. Cause I feel like the more that I, uh, the more that I observe beyond human species, it feels like they're more, they're living accordingly to their kind and humans are not. Uh, humans try to not be human by, um, again, like being complicit to the capitalist project in a way, and in a way we have to be in order to survive. Unfortunately, this is the setup. But whenever I see just fish being fish <laughs> and, and, and being together, um, trying to find food together, no homework, no work, I'm, I'm reminded of how, you know, is it, is it possible that we just have to access what we already have right now? Again, like accessing the natural abundance that we already have and somehow beyond human species naturally show that to me. And in the context of accountability, how do I, in my work, in my um, subjective experience, in my own skills and, and, and strengths, how do I maintain that abundance for them, for these species, for the land? Um, what does it mean to sustain their um, them just being them? Um, and to add on to that, like, I feel like um, accountability towards um, the natural world will always be land back, will always be returning the land and the stewardship of the land to indigenous peoples. And so um, I feel like that has to be accomplished at a local level, um, at a grassroots local level, uh, dependent on where you're at. And again, like dependent on where your strengths are at. And to organize and to practice justice-oriented, climate justice-oriented practice and land-back justice-oriented practice um, with, um, to lead with awe in that, to lead with wonder, to lead with astonishment, astonishment of the beauty before us and wanting that beauty to be sustained, to be protected. Yeah, I feel like that's that's important to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I I guess I'm hmm. I feel that this eros or desire and love can connect us or or lead us to new worlds and I'm really yeah, I think it's funny because in a lot of ways, what we see in dominant culture of how to get out of the predicament we're in is more of the same, it's like mm -hmm. more extraction, yeah. more industry, different economies, different money systems, but really it's just reinventing the same wheel. And I think so much of what you've spoken about are... I don't want to say the solutions because I really don't like that word, but uh, they are the ways we can explore ourselves out of mm -hmm. this really 
challenging and um, in a lot of ways, sad time, lonely, lonely time. And so, yeah, I just love speaking with that and thinking about your article, what capitalism has to do with falling in love. <laughs> and I, 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 I really love that title. And I love thinking about, you know, how we move beyond extraction and how we, yeah, how love and desire and connectedness leads us to new worlds and how do we grow and listen to them and show up for our love. Um, you know, you write love is multifaceted, love is messy and messy isn't marketable. It takes courage to confront that each of us loves in complex and untidy ways. And that means we won't always get things right. The good news is that being a lover doesn't mean being perfect. It's about showing up, end quote. And yeah, maybe we could just speak to showing up for love mm -hmm. and explore that a bit. Mm -hmm. I love that. Thank you. I forgot that I wrote those words. Thank you for reminding me of those words. I feel like being a lover is one of the selves that I want to access to more. I wish that we asked each other that more um, in a you know day-to-day -day or maybe like weekly basis. Like, how are you a lover today? And I feel like if I am asked that, I am reminded of the things that I already have and that I'm already, that I can be grateful for. I feel like the, at the heart of being a lover is gratitude, is awe. And being in this world right now, an overconsumptive, overindulgent, extractivist, as you say, um, and I agree with that um, world. There's something about awe and gratitude that makes me want to give. And maybe in certain moments to also um, give up <laughs> on, on things that do not, that get in the way of our connection, of our intimacy, of, of what's possible with our connection. And so when I think about, um, let's say my, so I'm back here in the Philippines and I'm in closer proximity with the ocean and I'm, I'm getting into surfing <laughs> and there's a aliveness to it, a connection with the water, with the waves, with balance and motion. And because of that awe, because of that astonishment and that uh, tapped in electrifying energy, I I try as best as I can for that not to be interrupted. And with the gratitude towards the waves, how then do I, um, you know, practice and have sustained practice that would protect the ocean. So that's what I mean earlier, that when we organize, when we unionize, when we are, when we defy <laughs> um, capitalist and white supremacist, ableist, et cetera, like notions, ideologies, and, and structures of the state. Like how do we lead with astonishment? How do we lead with the gratitude that we have over the things, the beings, the subjects of our astonishment? And, and it does start with asking, like, you know, how are you, um, how are you a lover today? Like, what is it that you're 
you're in awe of, you know, who is the subject or what is the subject of your affections? What was, when was the last moment that made you feel like you want to lean in, um, that made you feel safe enough to want to lean in, to be intrigued, to, um, to embrace, to kiss, um, to, to listen. And I will always connect, like as long as I'm living in this lifetime, I will always connect loverhood with um, with social justice work or justice oriented practice. Like I feel like there's, I can't disentangle these two parts of my life. Like a lot of why I do what I do has so much to do with um, with wanting to to express this this gratitude, this awe, this um, this wonder, or this intrigue towards more wonder and possibility. Um, I feel like I'm drifting from your question. I'm just like really riffing from that. And I think I'm also um, expanding what it also means to fall in love too. Like it's more than just the you know monogamous romantic partnership but I think about what it's like to fall in love with with friends to fall in love with again like beyond human species to fall in love with stories even to fall in love with parts of yourself um that kind of brings me back to my humanity um and to feel more humanized or rehumanized is automatically defiant against capitalism that functions in a way that wants us to be machines. And so, um, yeah, I feel like I, I, it makes me wonder, like, what is it like for, for you or for anybody who's listening to intersect loverhood with your practices, with the ways that y'all divest capitalism and oppression? Oh, Gabes, thank you so much for going in so many directions with us and it's been a really sweet conversation that has left me feeling warm and also more and more ready to show up to continue and do the work internally externally individually collectively (laughs) all the ways that we've spoken to so thank you so much for your time I really appreciate it Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was by Amara, Blue Doll, and Annie Sumi. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Francesca Glasswell, and Julia Jackson. 